Welcome to episode five, season two of this spiritual fix, where today we're going to be talking about the perfections in Buddhism. It is part three of our three part series. Enjoy. This spiritual fix. Two mystical mamas hacking the self-help game. With Anna Stromquist and Christina Wilson. Hello, Christina. Hello, Anna. How are you? Better now that I figured out how to plug my new mic in. That will always help, right? Yeah. Always. Anyone was wondering why the last two episodes, my sound quality sucked compared to Chris's. That's why. Yeah. But we're all good. We learn. We adapt. We do all the things we need to do to come to you today, whatever day it was. Speaking of which, Tuesday, this we're recording this on the 25th of June. And this week's episode had some technical difficulties. Um, Anna, do you want to tell the story of the technical difficulties? Oh, God. I don't know if it was Mercury and retrograde or if I royally pissed off the electronic devas of my life or if I just had some inner dragon that needed to churn up some conflict to feed my PMDD dragon. I don't know what it was, but I know that my garage band crashed and my computer crashed when I was rechecking the episode to be published on the 22nd, I realized it was missing something. So Chris fixed it. And I went back in the morning after it was published and only 38 minutes were published instead of the full hour and 10 minutes. Cause I was like the first three hours that this has been up has, it's been, it's been wrong. I was like, Chris, Chris, what's going on? And so from my perspective, I was sitting in bed and I had just done a regression. I was like in that little hazy, amazing space right after regression. And I get a text from Anna being like, there's no intro. And I was like, oh, fuck, I totally messed that up. Like I didn't put an intro in for whatever reason, but I kind of think I didn't put an intro in because it led to this whole experience, which was a gift in and of itself. So I get out out of my haze and I go and I put the intro in and then I bounce it and I do and I have I'm in the country. So it takes me a long time to upload all this stuff to upload it to my cloud storage and then from go from my cloud storage to Red Circle. And sometime in that period, I have no idea what it was like our our podcast platform was having a lot of issues, right? Like I was trying I basically spent almost an hour trying to fix this episode and it was buffering the whole time and I couldn't hear it, but I was like trying to hear back to be like, let's just make sure everything is okay. And so then I wake up in the morning and I'm like a super tender waker upper because I've usually come from a really crazy dream state. And I like really need to just like chill out with my experience. And I have all these like frantic texts from Anna saying you need to go fix the episode and having had done that the night before and And what had happened was that, you know, Anna was really frustrated, understandably was very frustrated because she thought that I hadn't checked my work, despite the fact that I had spent 45 minutes checking my work and trying to check my work and all that kind of stuff. But some of the information wasn't available because the platform was being weird. And it really started to hurt my feelings. And I was like, really in that tender place of like, oh, my God, this doesn't feel good at all. Like, I am working really hard. I recognize my mistakes. And 
I'm really, my, I'm really, my, I'm like upset. Like I'm upset. I feel my hurt. I feel like my feelings are hurt. I feel like she's attacking me and I've literally done everything that I can almost all of like, I didn't feel like it was in my power to fix it because I felt like I had done everything I could to fix it. And I felt like she was just attacking me. And, and can I say real quick, or can I, yeah. put, can I put in my defense real quick? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I just I want to say explain that that wasn't justified. It wasn't that my original. So my the original five minutes of when I noticed it was I thought Chris didn't check her work and I was annoyed with her. And then as soon as I went into Squarespace, so then I realized that every single page in Squarespace was letting me edit it. But every time I went into that episode to edit it, it would malfunction and crash. On, on every computer that I had access to, it was doing that. And that's when, after about five minutes, I realized, oh, gosh, this has nothing to do with what Chris did. This was, like, supposed to happen because my GarageBand crashed, my laptop crashed. Now the Squarespace page is crashing and our podcast ho hosting website is crashing. Like, this is too – there's there's not that many – Chris doesn't have that kind of power. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that kind of power. So within five minutes, I realized I had made the mistake in assuming that it was quote unquote Chris's fault. And I tried to take it back, but the damage had been done. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. No, no, no. And that's a really good, that's a really good explanation. Cause there's obviously something, there's even a further story about why all these things happen, which we may not cover today because it would, we could probably take up a whole episode being like how Anna manifested electronic issues, but that is kind of a developing story that we may hit on later in the season. But the the long and the short of it was that for me, I realized that my natural tendency is to be a people pleaser in the sense of when it's not people who are in my family, which my family will know, um, is, you know, people in my family, <laughs> I am not people pleaser, like, because I see them as an extension of myself. And I don't try and please myself. I'm very harsh on myself. So I'm very harsh on my family. But for anybody who exists outside the bubble of self, right, which is what I call like my family, even Anna, as close as we are, I'm always trying to make everything okay. Like I'm always just like, let's just, let's just avoid conflict. Let's just not have this. Like we need to, we, you know, and so people pleasers are very avoidant of conflict. And what I recognized was that there was a tendency in myself to want to just say, I forgive you, Anna. Obviously, I know it's your PMDD. And I, and, and I know all these reasons, like logical reasons why you would say the things that you said. And you even before I even got to it, were like, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to say that. Like you had already apologized for something that you had said. But like what I recognized in that moment was it was such a gift for me because I recognized that if I had just gone like, I'm sorry, I love you, or I'm, you know, I'm sorry, forgive me, I love you, thank you. If I had just gone straight to forgiveness, it would have been a total betrayal of my own boundaries and my own feelings, right? Because so often when people like really hurt me, I usually just try and forgive them before it even comes to anything because I don't want to have to actually tell them how I feel. And so for me, like this was such a gift because I was like, I'm actually just going to get pissy right now. Like I'm going to get pissy and I'm going to be juvenile. I'm going to be immature, but at least I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing right now. And I kind of recognize that if I didn't, if I didn't experience my own experience, I didn't necessarily have to get pissy at Anna, but like if I didn't experience my experience and I just went straight to forgiveness, that is a form of spiritual bypass. So we talked more about spiritual bypass last season in the culture of spirituality episode, but 
spiritual bypass is the process in which um, the best way I've heard it explained is that you go straight from your kind of solar plexus, your third chakra, straight into your throat, and you don't experience anything through your heart. You don't kind of surrender to the experience that you're having, right? And you kind of go straight out of your body. You kind of, you have the experience, but you don't want to experience it. So you go straight out of your body. And I just want to like say that for anybody else who's like me and maybe conflict avoidant to not use these practices as as ways to bypass your own experience, because I feel like the proper way, if you want to say the real way that doesn't bypass any of your systems is to be like, this really hurts. Like that, that's really pissy. I'm going to like establish a boundary that it's not okay to talk to me like that or something like that. Even saying that feels really uncomfortable even now saying that, but to, to create a boundary so that you don't feel like you're getting walked over to actually speak your truth, even if you're speaking it to you don't have to necessarily speak it to the other person. And then you can forgive, but you have to experience the bodily sensation in order to be able to observe it and then forgive it and watch it. Do you have any thoughts about that, Anna? I was going to say, well, there's a, the quote should like that's ideal, but we don't all do that. And if you're not doing that, that's okay. And one day you will. And just well, observe, observe that sometimes, you know, you're not ready to necessarily feel all that. And you do might, you might bypass and go straight to forgiveness. I mean, obviously I do it more often than not. So, you know. Yeah. I guess I just, the, the word should kind of triggers me. Like we should, so if so you want to be add- more full, this is what you can do, but there's no shoulds about it. Cause it's like, you can, or you can't do it. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's it. And I'm just saying, observe yourself. Like there's more depth to the process of forgiveness maybe than than we should say otherwise. And it's interesting because Luke, we were on the way back. Um, I was just driving back and we listened to, he had a podcast and it was about grounded spirituality. And it was interviewing a guy named Jeff Brown who has a bunch of books and he is all about, um, he calls it patriarchal, patriarchal spirituality, which is this idea that like, and he, he really rags on Eckhart Tolle, which is interesting. And we can get into this in another way because I know this is opening a loop right now. But it was interesting because one of the things he talked about was like, in his experience, so much of spiritual practice is about leaving the body, even though it's like live in the now, but like it's like live in the now outside of your body and how he's like very much an advocate of this kind of what I would call like divine feminine spirituality, which is like in your body is where you seek salvation is probably the wrong way of saying it, but in your body is where you can experience the most holistic type of spirituality. Um, I would agree. And I guess that's, yeah. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say with this is that like by having some sort of spiritual bypass and going straight out of your body and into the place of forgiveness and kind of acting like everything's fine, you do a disservice to your own bodily experience. And we mm-hmm. are in human bodies. So we have to experience things. Like and, that. and I feel like it's kind of a microcosm of what goes on in a lot of relationships. Because I was talking to my friend today, I don't think she'll mind me sharing this, I won't use her name. But she was saying that she has noticed that she lives with a, a very messy man. And she is a clean freak by her own, by her own, um, definition. And she says, you know, she keeps forgiving him and working on him and doing meditation. And she's like, there's a whole, like, 
there's a whole part of the world's population of women who are working hard on themselves and doing a lot of inner work just to be okay with living with a slob and just to be mm -hmm. okay with living with an asshole. And isn't that in some way a form of spiritual bypass? Because by women in general here, by women, and I think it's a, you know, due to privilege, et cetera, it's not like men are inherently bad, but Women are like focusing on bettering themselves and becoming more patient and loving and forgiving and kind. And in some way, they're bypassing the man's experience of having to own his own shit and and clean up after himself or change. And and so we were talking about that. And I was like, well, you know, the point of a relationship, I, I mean, I, I told her that I think the point of, of life is to wake up and get enlightened. And, you know, Buddha wouldn't be angry if he was living with a slob. He would find a way to forgive that and, and not let it touch his soul. And she says, yeah, but at what point do you, do you, are you on this world world to just see everything as a suffering challenge opportunity game to overcome? Like, what if I just don't want to be married to a slob anymore? Yeah. You, you know? Yeah. And then I'm, that's a great question too. I mean, and then the yeah the question is at what point at what point are you done forgiving and at what point are you ready to say this story is not for me? Yeah, it's a, it's a, interesting. It's just a, it's an interesting can of worms, and I don't know if there's a right answer. You know, and that's really fascinating too because Luke and I were having like the mid podcast conversation, right? And I was talking about the the guy Jeff Brown was using the language patriarchal spirituality, and Luke was getting really triggered by that, right? Because probably because I'm constantly calling him up you know, tall, white man, good looking, you know, like literally the apex of all like privilege goes to him. And he's very, very upset with me when I say that, but, um, or not very upset. He's upset as he gets. I was like, I was like, I was like, I think we can translate this in a slightly different way because, you know, it's all well and good to be like, well, the Buddha wouldn't live with a messy person or he would just find a way to forgive a messy person. But at the same time, like the Buddha embodies using like he he used the body in order to free himself of the body, but he was also the ascetic. It leads really well into the whole idea of renunciation as kind of this perfection, which is what we're going to talk about shortly. But well, yeah, I mean, Buddha like, left his wife and his yeah, exactly laboring he, he, wife he, he, and newborn son to go find enlightenment. So it's not like he was the husband of the year. And that's the epitome of divine masculine spirituality. So not saying patriarchal spirituality, but divine masculine spirituality, which basically says, I am going to go live in a cave. I'm going to denounce the body. So I'm going to not eat. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to do any of the shit that I have to do normally as a person. I'm going to get rid of all my responsibilities, right? And I'm going to live off of whatever. And I'm going to go live this spiritual life. But it's like, well, wait a second. Like, what ha I mean, like, how many spiritual masters have been female? And like, can you correlate the number of spiritual, spiritually female people? Like, you know, how many women have had kids and then gone on to be spiritual gurus? There probably only, aren't that many. Not many. <laughs> I know of Deepa Ma, and, and that's about it. But and, you and know, almost every female one has never basically was a renunciate before they had kids. Right. So <laughs> for those of you who don't know the background story, I'll just quickly say Siddhartha Gautama was the Buddha. Before he was a Buddha, which is an enlightened person, he was a prince. He was born in Nepal. And the night that his wife went into labor with his son, he fucking left <laughs> to be like, I got to go find out inner peace. I got to go seek enlightenment. Like who fucking does that to their wife? Oh my God. I like, know. Like asshole. No offense. I love you, Buddha, for what you taught us. But the, the, the sleeping, unwakened, unenlightened Buddha did a really shitty thing to that woman. 
So he left town. He wandered around. He gave up his riches. He gave up food. He tried every freaking technique possible. He finally became enlightened, came back home. Um, his father, wife, and son became his his students. But the point is, yeah, what he did was not was not nice. It's kind of shitty. Yeah. No. And so and so that's where I then challenge. This is what opens up my mind of possibilities is that if everything in spirituality has been patriarchal in the sense that we only think that the divine masculine way, the enlightened way. So the the light, the mind way is the only way that we can reach a state of not having to be reborn. What happens if there's like a fucking divine feminine enlightenment and maybe it's called endarkenment, right? Like, you know, because it's like the shadow. I mean, like who's to say like we just don't even know we just don't even know we don't even know like i feel like we haven't even discovered the matriarchal version of enlightenment because it's been suppressed and killed and all these things throughout history but i'm super curious about that you know like yeah do the the traditionally matriarchal spiritualities have a form of of being able to to relinquish the the cycle of birth and redeath well um, could it be shakti could it be grace (laughs) Well, could it be, could, could the other yeah. could the divine feminine form of enlightenment just be Shakti where you just receive grace, which is also called effortless yoga. So there's non-effortful and effortful yoga. Effortful yoga is being on this very rigid Buddha oriented path of like, I'm going to burn off all my karmas. I'm going to purify my mind and I'm going to get enlightened in the process. And non-effortful yoga is the belief that when you are ready, the master will appear and endow you with darshan or shakti and essentially bestow you with enlightenment maybe that is the feminine form which is just to receive it and not actually work hard for it i I don't know i don't know the answer um yeah and maybe that is i mean maybe that's it right because in some ways they're both kind of aiming for the same thing but they have very different methods for doing it right like in the sense of shadow work which is what we're calling the divine feminine And, and let me just like very specifically say that we say light and dark and you could say light side and dark side. But like, I think, I think that's obviously just like a construct of the language of duality that we have right now. And it's not to say that dark is evil. Like there's no connotation here with evil, right? It just has to do with something that needs to be revealed. Of course we say, pull it into the light as if every, everything in our language says we have to take the darkness and make it light. Well, because darkness is the absence of light. It's not a presence of anything. Right. So there you go. There you go, Anna. You just totally broke it open for me in my mind, which is this idea that like, if, if all of your stories, they all have resistance in them, they all have light, they all have sound, they all have matter, right in them, all of your stories do. And as you work on this grand process of shadow work, you're basically relinquishing all the stories, right? So you're relinquishing all the resistance in you, all the things that keep your ego in place, all the things that anchor you to this idea of self, of ego. And the more you relinquish that, the darker you get, because maybe that's the case or the quieter you get, right? Because the sounds and the resistance and all that kind of stuff just kind of empties out and you just become the vessel to be I think you just become more empty for the light to enter. Well, there you go. Like, do you become more, you like what, you know, but I totally get you. I totally get get, get what you're saying. I would naturally go too, but I'm like, I'm kind of questioning that a little bit now. That's fun. Yeah. Anyway. It's a fascinating cool. topic. It is. It is. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I love you. Thank you, Anna. And I am sorry, too, that, that I am sorry, too, that my first, you know, that's the thing with the injustice wound. When you are in the injustice wound, 
you put on the mask of the harsh critic. Well, I was listening to one of the episodes and Christina called it the villainizer and not the harsh critic. And I thought that was a way better personification of that mask is to call it the villainizer. So, you know, I experienced injustice for a moment. I was like, this quote unquote should be done. It quote unquote should have been done in this way. And so what did I do? I became a villainizer. I villainized Christina in my mind and thinking she didn't check her work. This is all her fault. Immediately I regretted you know, I regretted that. And it was my wound. And I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. I am a wounded person. And my injustice wound fucking is a piece of shit. No, just kidding. I need to love that part of me too. But the point is, I'm going to love it. I'm going to love that cute little villainizer. She's so fucking cute. But, and I'm going to love the part of me that wants to judge the villainizer. And there you go. And it's an endless cycle of layers and layers that just need love. And I'm, and I'm sorry, Chris, but, but thank you for turning it into something beautiful, which was a life lesson. Yeah, it seriously was a life lesson. So So you do do really well if you were married to an asshole, a lot of life lessons. No, I'm kidding. That was the (laughs) conversation I was having with my friend. Anyways. Hi, Christina, co-host of this spiritual fix. Has listening to our podcast stirred up something for you with the primal wounds? The good news is, is you have access, and that is the first step to transforming these wounds. We created support packages to help you through this process, and they're available on our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com. These packages were designed by Anna and I, combining techniques and hacks from our own experience working through our own wounds. Each packet contains a workbook and two meditations, one about forgiving those who have wounded you, including yourself, and one about reprogramming old beliefs. You can buy an individual support package or for those next level processors, all five packets, abandonment, injustice, rejection, betrayal, and humiliation available on our website in our shop. You what are we talking about today? Today yeah. <laughs> it's our third part series of our Truth Never Dies. Uh, episode one, we discussed the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path, which was Buddha's discussion of truths about suffering and how to come out of suffering. Episode two was about the 10 hindrances to enlightenment, meaning we are already truly enlightened and exactly as we should be, but there are 10 things to unlearn or 10 untruths to unlearn to take it off. And today we're discussing the perfections or paramis, paramis, whatever you want to call it in um, Pali, I believe. In yeah. The 10, the 10 perfections or the 10 yeah. par. I thought he said paramis is how he said it. Yeah. But paramis. yeah. So they're basically in the short form, the paramis are the buckets that you fill up throughout all your lives. And when they are all, when they all runneth over, then you're good. Like, you know, you kind of, you've got the, um, the idea being that in some ways they kind of counteract the, uh, the piece of that. So, but first, before we get into the paramis, we're going to talk about Anicca. Anicca. Impermanence. Impermanence. (laughs) So yeah. Tell us about it, Anna. (laughs) There is a law, another law of Buddha, which is a beautiful law, which is the law of impermanence, otherwise known as Anicca. It is that everything in this world arises just to pass away, arises and passes away, arises and passes away. Impermanence can be extended across the five aggregates of reality, material forms, feelings, perceptions, formations, and consciousness, which is to say all of those five things arise and pass away, and it's happening quicker than you'd ever think. 
arises, passes away, arises and pass away. The truth of a Nietzsche that everything is impermanent is the cornerstone for overcoming that second noble truth, which discussed that in life, there is always craving was truth number one. And truth number two was that craving and aversion and ignorance are the cause of suffering. Well, that is because you have craving and aversion for things that are impermanent. So the point being, you know, the six sense doors let in the stimulus and it's either pleasant or unpleasant. If it's pleasant, you're going to crave more of it. If it's unpleasant, you're going to have aversion towards it. So the irony is whatever sensation that you're responding to is a temporary sensation. The You know, whether it's a fly landing on your cheek or, you know, the neighbor dumping dog poop in your trash or like what, whatever, whatever the issue is that's making you react, whatever is causing that reaction is impermanent. So you are getting pissed off and let, or chasing after something that is not even going to last. Like it's kind of like an addict who's chasing their drug and their next high. They're chasing something that doesn't even last forever. It's only temporary. And we're all doing that. Like we all might not be addicted to heroin, but we're all chasing that next high, whether it's dessert, whether it's a compliment, whether it's romance, whether it's that Netflix show, whether it's money, whether it's that shopping spree, like we're all chasing after impermanent, impermanent stimulus. And so Buddha says the way out of suffering is to recognize that everything on this earth, even you, even your consciousness, even your body is temporary. It arises simply to pass away. And y'all might know that you might get a high, like that high of ordering something online. And then when it gets there, you don't even want it anymore because it was like, it arises just to pass away. And then you've spent your money on nothing. And we kind of do that with our time. We, we spend our time on craving for impermanent objects and permanent things. So figure out what you really want out of life, which is probably enlightenment if you're listening to this podcast, and recognize that everything that you're chasing or running away from either side of that coin, it's impermanent. It's it's arising simply to pass away. Yep. Yep. And so this is it's an interesting thing because um when you uh, you may hear people say this too shall pass that that's like a very buddhist term in terms of talking about impermanence like oh I, uh, you're having a really hard time right now this too shall pass and it was so interesting because um during vipassana retreats they tell the story and the story is about how the buddha when he was uh looking into the nature of the body he kept finding what he called kalapas, which is what you could kind of translate into either subatomic particles or atoms. So using science talk, he basically found the makeup of the body was actually these impermanent little pieces of energy that blinked in and out of existence all the time, that basically we were empty space. And this was in 500 BCE. So this is, you know, this is a long time ago. This was, you know, um, 2,500 years ago. And he was understanding the nature because he had honed his focus and his concentration and his sensitivity to what the body was doing. He was able to gain awareness of his own body structure to see that matter arose and blinked in and out of existence a a trillion times a second. I think it was one over 26,532 or something like that seconds. Um, And that, you know, that this was the nature of reality in the what Buddhists will say is that the center will not hold, meaning if you think you have a core being, the closer and closer and closer you look at this being, you start to realize there's nothing there. Like there isn't anything to 
to like, you, you can divide and divide and divide infinitely and you still will come up with a lot of empty space with some things, but there's empty space between it. And so the story that they tell in Vipassana is that, you know, there was a guy who had a machine back in, you know, the early 20th century who figured out that, you know, matter arose and like blinked in and out of existence, you know, however many times a second. And these Buddhists were so excited because they like, they like, they're like, oh my God, somebody figured out that what the Buddha figured out 2,500 years ago. Let's go, let's go check this guy out. Let's go see what he's doing. Like his machine can figure this out. Let's go, go visit him. And they got on a plane and they go and visit this guy. And this guy is just a scientist in a lab who they say is completely miserable. Like it's like his machine was able to recognize that matter blinked in and out of existence so many different times, but he was completely miserable. And he hadn't realized it himself. His machine had realized it, but his his mind, he, the scientist's mind hadn't been honed enough to be able to experience this in his own body. And so, you know, it was just one of those things about early science, like, oh, great, you realize the nature of reality, but you're letting a machine do it and you're not doing it through your own self-discovery. So fast forward to today and, you know, we keep, you know, we say that the Higgs boson is the smallest form of particle of, of subatomic matter that can come into existence. But, you know, as we said in a, in, um, in another episode, we, you can keep probably dividing that for however long and actually recognize that consciousness and thought, um, particularly consciousness is actually the basis of reality and more and more and more quantum physicists and more and more and more physicists and mathematicians are starting to recognize that this is in fact the fact. So, Buddha figured it out 25 years ago, 2,500 years ago, and science is finally coming to that same conclusion. So moving right along to the 10 perfections. Yep. The 10 perfections. Um, so uh, like we said before, the 10 perfections are basically what you could, could consider buckets of characteristics, values, virtues. We're going to talk about a little bit about how it um, the kind of cross religious things and how a lot of the religions have something similar to this kind of character traits and activities that you can do to kind of improve yourself in terms of your um, ability to do stuff. So, Anna, did you want to introduce the um, um, the paramis in a different way? What I wanted to say was that tying the paramis into the love and permanence is that Buddha stresses that to be like awareness that awareness of impermanence is the hallmark feature of an enlightened being. And so what does that mean? It means being aware when something is present or not present. So saying like the parami of renunciation is present. The parami of renunciation is not present. Simply observing when it arises, when it passes away, because some of these, until you develop them fully, they're simply going to arise and pass away, arise and pass away. And he talks about observing the impermanent nature, even of your paramis. So that's what I wanted to say about it. All right. So heading straight into it, here is the list of the 10 perfections. And depending on where you go, what sect of Buddhism you go to, you're going to find different names for this. And so I will, um, when we kind of go into the descriptions, we'll go, we will give you the other names for these. But according to the Vipassana version of the virtues, this is what they are. Um, renunciation, which we've talked about a number of different times so far. Morality or virtue. Effort. Wisdom. Tolerance. Truth. Strong determination. Metta or loving kindness. 
equanimity, and dana, or generosity. So I'm going to start first by talking about renunciation. Renunciation is, uh, when we think of it in a traditional sense, it is an idea of the full-on renunciation is I'm going to become a monk. So I'm going to renounce all of my worldly possessions. I'm going to, I'm going to renounce everything that I possibly can because it dissolves the ego in the best possible way, right? And that's very judgmental for me to say the best, best possible way. I will just say it is a very effective form of dissolving the ego because our possessions, our families, our all of the things that that make us us that that you know all the things that strengthen me to say I am Christina Wiltsey and Christina Wiltsey has this and Christina Wiltsey is this to this person and Christina Wiltsey is this to this person all those things bolster my ego so the more I get rid of them it's a natural way to dissolve the ego furthermore what renunciation does is it basically asks you to check your desires, right? Because desire and craving is such a massive part of this process that by renouncing things, you no longer desire, you can basically form counter desires, you can basically get rid of your need to have creature comforts, to have comfortable things, to have luxury, to have all these different things. If you've just decided to renounce that from your life, then you're doing a lot towards actually being able to fill up this bucket um, in this in this lifetime, right? Obviously, it takes multiple lifetimes to fill up any of these given buckets. But for the common householder, you know what what it means to be a renunciate um, can mean a number of different things. It can mean periods of fasting. It can mean um, you know periods in which you're recognizing that you have an impulse to go buy everything on Amazon. Um, I shouldn't even say their name, but you know, you have an impulse to go buy something for a long time. And you're going to say, actually, I'm going to go through a period of two weeks where I'm going to say, I'm going to live off of what I have right now. You know, you can practice periods of renunciation, um, in order to be able to help dissolve your ego or to help check your desires and your cravings Mm -hmm. as a spiritual practice, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to get rid of all your house. Like a lot of people I know, like I have a friend right now. He's literally given up everything. He's gone through a breakup and he's gone through a period where he has basically gotten rid of all of his worldly possessions because he wants to be light. He wants to be in that period of renunciation right now. And that works. That That's a very good spiritual practice as you go through a transition phase. So that's that. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, other things we can do is recycle, reuse, um, vegetarianism, veganism, Mm-hmm. abstain from alcohol. Like there's a lot of different ways you can renounce things. I have a funny story. When I was living in India, I had a Moroccan boyfriend at the time. And he said that I was very obsessed with my hair. I have, for anyone who doesn't know what I look like, I have a really beautiful hair. Beautiful hair. <laughs> beautiful, gorgeous <laughs> hair. And I'm very vain. And um, I remember he kept telling me I needed to shave my head. And I didn't. I couldn't. But I could see his point, And he was so right. I needed to renounce beauty and vanity and my hair. And like he kept encouraging me, shave your head, Anna. It'll be so good for your growth. Shave your head. And I'm like, if I'm ever going to do it, now's the time. Like I'm living in India. No one's going to think twice if I shave my head over here, like in this, you know, meditation community. I didn't do it, but you know, and he's like, you're going to regret it. You're going to regret that you didn't take this chance to shave your head. And I like, he's right. I should have fucking shaved my head. (laughs) That's awesome. But it reminds me that I I think I actually did that same thing. When I was like a junior in college, I had this like this blonde hair that was just like sun bleached. And it was just like, 
such a massive part of my identity. And I cut it all off up to my ears because I was so attached to my looks when I looked like that. Even, even recently I cut off all my hair and it was the same thing. It was like, my long hair was a representation of like youth, youthly beauty. And I like really want to get it back. Like I really miss it because I kind of want that. I want to be able to like toss it around and not have to do anything. And yeah. Um, but that's a really good point too, that the renunciation could be a diet. It could be a, a choice that you do in that, in that way. And it could simply be um, anything that you're really attached to that makes you your ego that inflates your ego, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, cool. Um, so next morality, Anna, tell us about morality. Morality. So within the moralities we have, we're in the, within the pyramid of morality, we have essentially a hisma, which is no harm. Do not do harm to others. And there is the five sila, 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 five, I think it's sila, five sila. Yeah. Whatever. We're, we don't speak Five Poly, Sila. So we're gonna be Whatever. We don't speak Polly, so we don't fucking know. But I think it's Sheila. I thought it was Sila. Sheila. Whatever. It's spelled S-I-L-A with a little line on top. Yeah. We um, abstain from killing. That means eating meat, if you're following this strictly. Stealing. Speech. Sexual mixed conduct and intoxicants. And the reason why intoxicants is put on there is because once you break intoxicants, you're likely more likely to break any of the others. Mm -hmm. So I just want to quickly just talk really interesting is that in the Ten Commandments, everyone says, this is not Buddha, but this is just my own little Jewish background. I want to throw this in. In the Ten Commandments, it says, you know, everyone says, thou shall not murder, thou shall not murder. But the original Hebrew actually translates to thou shall not kill a person's spirit. And if you're translating it to mean thou shall not kill a person's spirit, we can say that domestic violence, rapists, sex abusers, child abusers, they're killing someone's spirit. And so they are in essence breaking the Ten Commandments. So I just think that's very interesting because it's very interesting. Because if you look at this, you know, thou shall not kill, or he I'm sorry, Buddha never said thou shall not, but they're saying abstain from killing, abstain from killing anything and stealing and speaking lies. And sexual misconduct, which, you know, it's a gray area. What do you consider sexual misconduct? If you're not hurting someone, maybe it's okay. And then the intoxicant one. The intoxicant one is interesting, too, just because I know plenty of people, and I have not done it, but I'm not necessarily anti this at all, that have done like hallucinogenic drugs and have had very similar to what kind of experiences you have in deep meditation through the drugs. But they say the difference is, is that the drugs are just the experience, whereas the meditation is the lifestyle, meaning or the life art, the art of living. Whereas um, the the drugs is just a quick, a quick fix, so to speak, a quick, interesting experience that not as life changing as, as finding it through meditation. So that in summary is morality is basically living a life of, of, of no, no harm to others, including yourself. And, and the reason why you want to have true speech and not talk shit about others or lie is because you're actually creating uh, negativity and, and not like negative energy, but you're creating anxiety in your body. Like you might not be aware of it when you lie, you think you're fine, like no big deal. But if you're in deep meditation and you look at the contents of your mind, when you lie, a lot of anxiety and a lot of unpleasant sensations will rise on your the surface of your body, even if you don't recognize it when you're conscious. Like when we lie or steal or cheat or do really shitty things, even if on the conscious level you think all's well and you're not hurting yourself, you are the first victim of your own impure behaviors. Right. It, because on a subtle set level, you are fucking up your body. 
That's so okay. So this that answers the question that I was going to bring up because I once had a conversation with someone who, um, you know, they really wrote a lot in their Dark Passenger, meaning that like the way, but theirs came from the way that they were raised. So they were raised that it was okay to con people and steal from people and harm people. Like as long as you got what you needed, that's all that matters. So on the conscious level, the person didn't even understand that that conning people and stealing from people was a bad thing, right? Because that's all that they had ever been taught. And so that's- Is this your husband? Just kidding. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm just kidding. He's like the furthest thing. Yeah, he's seriously the furthest thing. But you know, the question that the question is, is like, the question that I have is back then I didn't have the answer and I probably, I still don't have the answer, but the, uh, you know, it comes to the thought of like, if lying and stealing disturbs your own mind if on a conscious level you've never been taught that it is something that should disturb your mind then is it still bad is it still immoral like i think it will still disturb them because they have done vipassana meditation camps in tikar prison in india and in mm-hmm. many prisons across india now and normally what happens is normally and this is true universally in all prisons when they interview murderers and rapists and whatever 99% of them, and I might, I'm lying about the statistics, I can't remember them, but like 99% will say it's not their fault, that they're not at fault, that it's always because someone pushed them to do it, or it, they're innocent and they're in here for the wrong, they're not supposed to be here, or it was not their fault, it's because so-and-so really pissed them off. Like they always have a reason why it's not their fault, which we couldn't say in some ways, they have omission of guilt, they don't feel guilt, they don't consciously feel in touch with that. But when they come out of the Vipassana course, they're all like, I have wronged myself. I have wronged others. I can finally see that I did something wrong. And so it's because they finally got to look in the contents, the deeper contents of their mind and recognize that they did something wrong. So yes, I believe even if someone is taught that it's okay to kill and steal and lie and cheat, if they go deep into meditation, it is universal because what Buddha taught was universal, that there is there is going to be tension and unpleasant sensations arising on the body when you do that stuff. Yeah, they're not even they're not they're not beyond the laws of, of nature. Yeah, you can't you can't. I mean, no, it's the so, cause and effect. I would it's, say that. right. It's the game of cause and effect. And the game of cause and effect says that if you throw a billiard ball, if you hit a billiard ball, ball and it hits other people, like it's going to come back around to you sometime because there's an equal and opposite reaction that's happening and it's all connected to you. It's, it's the quantum entanglement of our world. Um, cool. All right. So on to effort. Effort is in your daily life, for example, you earn your own livelihood. When you are on a meditation course, you have an effort, you you put the effort towards purifying your mind by remaining aware and equanimous. And so basically, uh, the idea is this relates a lot back to what we were talking about in the four, the um the the noble, the eightfold noble path, which is right effort. So effort energy all relates back to this idea of of the perfection of effort, which says that um, I'm going to put my energy and concentration into the thing that is going to lead to my liberation. That's the idea of effort. Because without you sitting down every day and doing whatever your practice is, whether it's meditation or holotropic breathing, which is like, you know, kind of a more of a divine feminine meditation, whatever it is, you putting in the effort is necessary to be filled enough to be able to get you to a point where you're good. It's kind of a very dualistic mm-hmm. view of things in some ways. Cause it's like, if we say you're not the doer of action and then it's like, well, you got to do a whole bunch of shit. Like, you know, 
that's a little well, confusing. <laughs> it's interesting because my husband and I often debate this because I come from this very masculine approach of like, we, we have to fight for our own mental liberation to be like the Buddha. We must follow the eightfold noble path and da, 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 da. I'm very, I'm very masculine and he's very feminine. He's like, Nope, you just got to be in the right place at the right time and grace will come. So he's into non-effortful yoga and he's a, he has received Shaktipat, but the point that I wanted to say about that was we were debating this one day and I'm like, well, then if you're just waiting around to get enlightened and have Shakti pot, should you just run around, lie, cheat, steal and kill people? Like, uh, you know, you're just going to get enlightened one day and reward it anyways. What's the hell? Why not? He goes, no, 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 no. You perform effortful yoga to clear your clean yourself up to become the vessel to then receive effortless yoga, which is to say you work hard to make yourself an empty, clean vessel to then allow the grace of Shakti, the grace of enlightenment to come to you. So that was his take on it. And I don't know if it's right or wrong because we won't know until we're enlightened, but it does feel right. Kind of, it it kind of makes sense. And it, and it, it stops making them feel like they're against each other, but they're rather part of the same whole. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and kind of back to what we were originally saying in the, in the prelude is it's a little like the endarkenment. It's like, let's let there be an absence of light so that the light, you know, so that we get filled up with the light of the divine as opposed to the light of our personal stories. Right. Or, you know, the, the, the con, you know, the, the contents of our, of our minds and our personalities and our egos, like those contents don't fill up the vessel. Light fills up the vessel. Grace fills up the vessel. Um, awesome. Right. Cool. Next is wisdom. Panya is the Panya. <laughs> okay. So there are three types of wisdom. There is wisdom because you were told it. There is wisdom because you reasoned it. And then there is the third type of wisdom, which is direct experience. So the first type of wisdom is say your traditional religions where they're like, God is like this. And there you go. And no questions, please. (laughs) You know, and so or, you know, you go to school and they're like, this is the alphabet. And there you go. And then you have the second kind of wisdom, which is reasoning, which is well, I have one hand, I have one apple and I have another apple and I put them together and it seems like then I have two. Well, that makes sense. I'm going to believe it. And then direct experience would be like actually holding the two apples in your hand and being like, yes, I have two apples. That's kind of like direct experience, right? So the point is, is that of these three, Buddha says direct experience is the greatest teacher and it is the most truest form. It will actually have like a cathartic and and transformative flavor to your life, which we could all say like, oh, like we all understand the reasoning one. Oh, I read this health help book and that made so much sense. And it just made so much sense. And I, I, I like it, I reason, I use my intellect and understanding to deduce that, yes, this makes sense. And I understand it. And then you have like this aha moment and you viscerally feel it in your body and then you're never going back. You know, it's like when you stick your, someone tells you fire will burn your hand. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. One day you burn your hand. I tell you what, you are not getting your hand near that fire again because you have been changed. It has been a direct experience of teaching. You are wise beyond, you're just as wise as you could be with fire. And that's the same thing when you direct have direct experience of truth. You are forever changed because it becomes forever real to you. And I can say like, 
when you do a Vipassana course, which we keep talking about, we're not supposed to talk about what happened during the course because we don't want to create craving or aversion in others or make anyone think that their experience is any less valid from another's because they they didn't have that experience. But mm-hmm. I will say that going to Vipassana was great for me in terms of understanding through direct experience and not theory that even my body is impermanent, that every part of me is impermanent, that my consciousness is impermanent. You know, that, and, and I still need to learn it. I need, I still need to go back and probably learn it a thousand more times because it's just like layers and layers of this onion that need to be peeled off. But like having that direct experience of knowing that you're impermanent is so amazing. Like it reminds me in some ways of my first past life regression where I went back and under hypnosis and saw different lives. And then when I came out of it and I stood in front of a mirror for the first time and I looked at myself, it was like I saw my body as kind of like a a marionette puppet. And I had never felt that way before, but I suddenly saw my body as a vehicle occupying the place where my soul was, was playing. And it, it was a direct experience for me. It was visceral. It I had a visceral feeling of like, I am my soul and my soul is using this body and Anna, the personality as a puppet. And I felt it. And that moment changed me in some ways. It, it really did. It helped me overcome fear of death. It helped me recognize my friendships with others was about soul connections and not personality connections. And, you know, it did so much for me because that's what experiential truth does. It, 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 it transforms you. So anyways, that is wisdom. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, all right. Next we have tolerance. Oh my God. Okay. So tolerance. What is it? Resolve? Oh, resolve. uh, No, uh, tolerance and patience. So it's funny. Oh my God. We're only at number five. Shit. (laughs) Just kidding. That's all right. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. I need patience. I need patience. You need patience, Anna. Um, So tolerance. It's funny because I feel like the word tolerance has gotten a lot of bad bad and, and and rightly so when it comes to kind of like justice things like oh i tolerate these people who have different views and look different than me and things like that and you're like it's not about tolerance it's about support and allyship and all that stuff is very true but tolerance in this particular case is about patience and it's about the ability and, and to me this has a lot to do with by trying to rush the situation or harshly criticizing yourself or judging yourself for not making more progress and things like that um, then that's no good. And if you're also not tolerant of other people, then, you know, that is, that causes more karma and that causes more aversion most of the time, which is like wanting to push things away. Like, I don't like how the situation is right now because I want that situation to be here right now. And so I'm not going to have patience and therefore I'm going to push it away. And, um, you know, one of the things that they say in Vipassana a lot with this is like, you are meditating in a room with a bunch of first time meditators and everyone is going through the ringer, even if it's your second or third or fourth or 10th or 500th course, like you're going to be in a room full of people who are fidgety, maybe making noises, like maybe doing whatever you can do. And the idea is that if you react to that and you let it disturb your peace, you're kind of only harming yourself. Um, and the more you can develop tolerance for what's going on, the better. And I have a funny story about this because it was one of the, it was, it was during my first Vipassana retreat. And so I did my first course in New Zealand 
This meditator next to me was a huffer. She was a stomper. She was every, she, she did all these different things. And every, I would, I would get to the meditation hall early. I was just like totally a teacher's pet when I first did my first Vipassana. And she, every single time my attention would go straight to her. I always knew when she was walking in the room and she just kind of became this thorn in my side. And I remember when I heard about the 10 perfections and I heard about tolerance, I was like, oh crap. Okay. Obviously this is the tolerance that I need to have because it would always take me out of meditation. And I would always start paying attention to her and being like, why can't she be more self-aware? Even to the point where like the saga continues in some crazy ways is that like the one time I went to go talk to the, the teacher about a dream that I had had, um, she was in the hall before me and you're not supposed to talk during these things. And I hadn't heard anybody talk, but she was screaming at the assistant teacher and she was yelling and like getting really like huffy and just like really upset. And it really disturbed my peace. Again, I was sitting there meditating, waiting for my turn. And I could hear this woman yelling at the teacher. And it was, I was just like, how could you even do that? Right. So that happened. And what the, was she yelling about? I'm I have no intrigued. idea because when we got to the end of the course, you're on the last day, you're finally allowed to talk and you're given a couple, you're, you're given time to talk to people as you kind of come out of this nine day period of intense meditation. And she found out I was an American and then she started attacking me for being an American. She was like, I can't believe you must feel so ashamed to be American. Like it's such an embarrassment to be an American. Like she was literally just like attacking me for this. And I was like, there's something going on here, right? Like there's some sort of karmic connection or there's some sort of lessons and tolerance that I need to have with this woman. And I even asked her, I was like, how did you find it? And she was like, oh, it was perfect. I was great. Everything was perfect. Even though I like knew that it hadn't been and I knew that it had, you know, it was like her level of self-awareness. Fast forward, five, in, go ahead. Injustice wound. <laughs> yeah. Fast forward five months. And I'm working as a ward clerk, which is like a administ, like a sec. It's not a secretary, but it's like um at a at a hospital, right? So a hospital in Auckland. I'm working. Um, I've just come off the night shift in the sense that I've been working all night, and it's like six. I have like an hour left in my shift, and who walks in but this woman? And she's 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 not parked in the parking lot. She's parked right outside the door. She's walked in and she's holding her arm. And it had been a crazy night. So, you know, she would have triaged like a four or five, which is literally like the least urgent things. And she's like, she sits down and she just starts huffing in the chair. She's literally 10 feet away from me. And I'm having to watch this woman again, huffing and (laughs) puffing because she's holding her arm like she's hurt. But she's it's like a sprain or something like that. Like, it's not bad. It's not life threatening. It's one of those things where you're going to be sitting in the waiting room for four or five hours, right? She sits there for 15 minutes and then she comes up and she's like, how long is this going to take? And she has an Kiwi accent, obviously. And we were like, it's probably going to take three or four hours for you to be, you know, seen. And she huffs and she leaves. And like, it was just the most amazing moment for me because I, by that point I was meditating every day and I was just like, there is totally a reason that this woman has come back into my life to teach me tolerance. Like 100%, this woman is my tolerance lesson. And ever since then, I've, I've just tried to, to treat every single thing that happens to me in meditation as an opportunity to get deeper into the meditation. I've trained my mind to do that for the very reason of this gift of a woman. So that's my long story, but I think it's, I love it. It's just one of those things, right? So that's tolerance. Next is truth. Truthfulness. Mm -hmm. So we can say that truthfulness applies to vocal truth, meaning what you say, but it goes from apparent truth to more subtle truth. Mm -hmm. 
So that means like what we were talking about before, on the conscious level, you might think, oh, I don't really feel any guilt for committing that crime or lying or cheating. But on the subtler level of reality, there is a deeper truth, which might be that you have disturbed the contents of your mind. So there is no imagination. It's all about real, um, being very like realist and not making things up and not imagining things, but just re- recognizing how truth can exist on a subtle level and then on an apparent level. Subtle meaning below the surface. Like what we were talking about in a lot of episodes were like someone says something and you're pissed and you quickly think on this, on the gross level, on the apparent level, it seems I'm mad because, you know, that guy cut me off in traffic. It seems on the apparent level and that's the, the reason. But then more subtly you come to recognize, well, no, it's because he triggered my injustice wound and I have an, an unhealed injustice wound about how things should be regarding traffic loss. Mm-hmm. And then you go even to a deeper level and you notice, well, actually – when his car cut me off, I had to slam on the brakes and that caused an unpleasant sensation in my foot. And my brain reacted to the subtler sensations of that tension in the muscle. And I'm reacting actually to that, but I'm not even aware of it. So truth is layers and layers and layers deep. We can say it's like an onion and you peel back layers and layers and layers. And the deeper you grow in your meditation and your mindfulness and your awareness and your equanimity, you come to recognize there are deeper levels of truth happening all the time. And that's what I believe is what was meant by that level of truth. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. It's like it's the seen and then the unseen and then the unseen and the unseen, the even deeper unseen, the other and deeper unseen. How many levels of, of the subconscious, right? Um, and then right. ultimately there is an ultimate truth, which maybe when you realize it, that's when you realize you become realized, right? We can all intellectually right. maybe, understand. Right. Maybe when we really, yeah, when we when we see really what's behind behind the behind what the at the center of that onion. Mm-hmm. We we completely woken up. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. Next is strong determination. Aditana. In um, Vipassana retreats, you make a decision to have strong determination to stay for 10 days. You say, I'm going to stay for these 10 days. Obviously, sometimes people leave. But the the commitment that you make is to recognize that the process takes 10 days. And if you leave halfway through it, you're not doing yourself justice. Um, you're not doing your process. You're not doing the process justice because you're basically it's it's kind of equivalent to 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 walking out in the middle of an open heart surgery while your 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 chest is still open. And so they ask you to make a um, strong determination to stay for the ten days. And then they also ask that once you start doing vipassana, you basically sit in these sittings of strong determination, which are an hour. And you do them three times a day. And in those sittings of strong determination, you're not supposed to move a muscle. The idea being that with the stillness of the body comes uh, a natural stillness of the mind. And by fidgeting and moving around, you're constantly keeping your mind at a surface level. And by keeping yourself as still as possible, you're able to get as deep as you possibly can within that time period. And for those of you who've been to Vipassana may know that the sittings of strong determination may, you may have great aversion to them um, because they are, they are what one could call possibly challenging. Other people love them. 
I have had mixed feelings about them, but it's um, because all the cramps that can come up, all the big, huge, massive sensations that can come up when you sit for an hour without moving a muscle can come up in that period. And you're really kind of sitting there and you're saying, I'm going to not move. Um, but strong determination outside of a Vipassana meditation um, course is this idea that I'm going to make a commitment and I'm going to stick to it because I recognize that I don't want to dig a hundred wells. I don't want to get this far into my process and then abandon it halfway through. I need to sit and I need to run the course of whatever this is. It's um, it's like that saying that says, if you haven't started, best not to start. But once you've started, it's best to start. It's best to finish. You know, this I, that's what people say about a lot of spiritual work is like, hey. Can you say that again? Yeah. So the, the quote is uh, essentially, I am paraphrasing it, but it is, um, if you haven't started, don't start. But once you've started, best to finish, right? This idea of like, mm -hmm. don't open a box of your own process and leave it open and unprocessed. <laughs> like best to finish. If you're going to open that box, you got to fucking finish that process, man. That's That's the way it is, you know? Right. Um, what did you think about the sittings of strong determination during Vipassana, Anna? What was your thought? I liked them. I thought they were great challenges. Yeah. I I have to tell you about this one, which is probably TMI for a lot of people. But I, I once was a server in, um, I went to, I was like in Jaipur. I was in India somewhere. And um, I used to get a lot of uh, stomach things going on when I was in India and Nepal when I was traveling a lot and um, I went into a sitting of strong determination uh, and probably about two or three minutes into it, I literally had to go to the restroom so badly. I just thought it was like, it was like a, it was like a very dire situation. Let me just say it that way. Like just imagine any sort of indigestion situation you can have in India and this is a very bad stereotype, and I'm sorry, not all of India is like that. But imagine something like that and having to sit for an hour without moving a muscle. And I think a lot of other people probably would have gotten up. But for me, I was like, I had this like, I'm a server. I can't possibly get up. Like, it's going to be so disturbing. It's going to disturb everybody else because they don't have tolerance yet because they're new. I sat in that fucking meditation for an entire hour thinking I was going to crap my pants and I never got up. And it was literally one of the most proud moments of my life. <laughs> oh my god. You guys god. should see the look on Anna's face right now. She's like, I cannot believe you just fucking said that on this podcast. <laughs> I just hope everyone knows that was Christina, not Anna talking. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your ego talking, Anna? Are you sure? Because we can totally that, switch. That's, that's, my, that's, my, that's my hindrance of conceit. <laughs> I, and I have no, apparently no rejection wound. We've already established this this week that apparently my rejection wound has disappeared and I do not care about talking about having to have the runs and having to sit in meditation for that period of time. So oh my apologies God. if I've, if I've offended anyone's uh, gentler natures. <laughs> okay. On to Meta. Meta. Let's go on. We're on to number eight. Meta. Meta bhavana, which is loving kindness, which is loving kindness. Yeah. It's just loving kindness, wishing it well, everyone. May all beings be happy. May all beings be liberated. May I be peaceful. May I be liberated. May I share that peace and harmony with others. Let me live my life in a way that is selfless 
that is serving to others, that is serving the higher good. So it's it's just about a loving, compassionate nature. And um, I love that one. Yeah. And and I think uh, I really like the use of the term goodwill when people describe Metta because goodwill is one of those things that um, I feel like can be very attainable for people who are not necessarily at the compassion level. A really easy process for doing this is like, have you ever found that there's like somebody in social media or somebody like that's in your realm of influencers, like people who are influencing you who you just don't like? because you think that they're a fraud or you think that they're whatever. Most of the time when you look into that, it's usually because you're jealous. Um, That's what I found for myself. And that's what I found for other people too. And so one of the best practices that you can do to practice meta is just to wish, wish them goodwill. So if they're doing something that is bringing light into the world, that is bringing or un, un, or is in darkening people's souls in a way of making them more empty, I'm like really cognizant of this because of our initial conversation today, but you can just wish them goodwill. And it's a really good way to recognize that it's a good way to, to diffuse any kind of jealousy or hatred that you may feel towards them and just say, hey, look, they are doing what they think is their calling to bring things into the world, even if it's not exactly the way that you think of things, just, just be happy that there are people who are literally spending their lives. There are so many people now who are dedicating their lives to bringing, um, you know, some form of consciousness, um, conscious awareness in the world, mindfulness in the world and, and have goodwill towards it. Yeah. I like that one. I like that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, next is equanimity. Uh, equanimity is a very fancy word and it is something that is incredibly important to know the definition of before you go into any Buddhist retreat of all, but equanimity is basically, um, to learn to keep the balance of your mind. Um, not only when you're experiencing kind of big unpleasant sensations, um, or blind areas that are happening in your life or in your body, but also the subtle pleasant ones. So basically being equanimous to both the bad and the good. And that's a tough one, but equanimity is the idea. Let's that, let's call you know, them pleasant and unpleasant because none of them are bad or good. Thank you. Pleasant hmm. and unpleasant. I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> oh, I activated my Alexa. So and, no. and, uh, Sorry. And, and we have a, an AI coming into the conversation. And uh, yeah, because the idea is that equanimity allows you to recognize the impermanence of the world. And the more... And the more conscious awareness you have of the impermanence of the world, the closer you are to becoming enlightened. And therefore, the more enlightened. That's why why equanimity is a thing. Yeah, equanimity and awareness, the two wings of the dove. Yes. And the last one is dana. Dana, which is is basically donations. So it could be, you know, service of your time. But in this sense, it's more giving of money. If you are a householder, if you are not a renunciate, if you are not walk roaming the planet with a begging bowl and spending your, all your free time meditating and you have a job and you have family responsibilities in a home, you are considered a householder and it is good then to use the money that you make to donate a portion of it to others. And I think that in the church it's called tithings. So it's, it's a very common thing. And the idea is that when you give, you give for the goodwill of others, 
And it's actually good for your karma when you do that. And so, for example, when you do take a Vipassana course, they don't allow you to, to give any donations till you finish a course, but then they want you to give the donation for a future student. You're not paying for yourself. You're not supposed to like say, all right, I'm giving $500 towards this course. You're like, I'm donating $500 so a future student can enjoy this course. Because when you do that, you're filling your dana parami, which is you're filling that virtue of love, a loving gift, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. much better. And then, and then by receiving it, you're becoming a renunciate because you're basically saying, well, I'm only here because someone else has paid for me and there's humility in that. So, so that's a side issue, how that related to the, the other, the other parmi. But the point is, is that giving of free will selflessly is true Donna. So like when you see, for example, on social media, when people are hiding a video camera and giving the poor student a brand new pair of shoes, or they're feeding a homeless person and, and recording the reaction, I don't know if that's necessarily Donna because that person is not necessarily giving selflessly. They are actually feeding their permanent personality or ego by saying, hey, look at me. Look what a great giver I am, right? Mm -hmm. I guess we could argue that philosophically, but, but, but to give truly and to give selflessly is to give often anonymously. Yep. Yep. So. And, and, and for those of you who don't have a thing that you want to tithe to, if you're not religious or you don't do Vipassana or Buddhism, it can just be seen as generosity of, it's basically generosity of money, if you want to say that. Um, uh, and so that, you know, that can also be an, an alternative there in terms of if, if you don't have an entity to give it to, but the idea is selfless, is the selfless act of generosity is important there. So in closing here, we've gone through the 10. I kind of just want to touch for for the shortest amount of time possible on just to recognize that if you have grown up Catholic, you may know of the, the seven Catholic virtues. If you've ever read anything by Benjamin Franklin, you know that he has 13 virtues that he goes to. The Taoists have eight virtues. Like everybody has kind of a version of this in their system. And a lot of them are very, very similar. The Catholics tend to be in opposition to the seven deadly sins. So like basically their virtues are like, hey, if you do these, then you won't be doing these bad things, stuff like that. And so, you know, I kind of encourage anybody to say you can take the Buddhist 10, but if there's another type of virtue that, you know, speaks more truly to your um, to your background or something like that, then that's also um, a good place to start. Because like I said, a lot of them are similar. Some of them include things like um, that are very earthly, like justice. Uh, which is, you know, a kind of a very important virtue for a lot of people and should be. But, you know, we're talking from a Buddhist perspective in terms of, hey, I want to become a, you know, I, I want to go down this path and maybe dig this hole in this well. But um, recognizing the benefit of having virtues or values or perfections or whatever you want to, you want to call them character building aspects of yourself is a beneficial thing to have. So that's all I wanted to say about that. What do you think, Anna? What, what do you think? What's your, what's your most filled bucket? What do you like jamming at? Let's see. What do I struggle with the most? What do I jam out to the most? Yeah. I think, I think I'm good at meta. I think I'm good at loving kindness to others. My job is a lot about that. I think yep. I have a lot of room to love and forgive flawed people. I think I'm great at meta. I think I really struggle with, effort. 
like making sure I sit on the meditation cushion every day, twice Mm -hmm. a day for an hour. In all reality, it's probably 30 minutes, 45 minutes a day. So I really struggle with the effort and also like keeping my mind focused when I meditate. I think, yeah, for me, effort's my, 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 my least filled bucket. Meta is probably my most filled. What about you? So the hilarious thing about what you said, I was going to say effort too, but Anna just pulled like, have you ever had a couple like be like, we only have sex three times a week. It's so terrible. And you're like, oh fuck, I only have, you know, like, like you just like compare, (laughs) there's a scene in a movie in which there's like a couple and they're going to a couple like, oh my God, we only have sex three times a week. It's so terrible. And then the other couple of like, obviously only has it like once a month. And the other couple's like, yeah, that's, that's terrible to only have sex three times a week. That's like not at all. And Anna totally just did that. Cause she's like, I only meditate for 30 to 45 minutes a day. And I'm like, I'm fucking lucky if I get 30 minutes a week at this point of doing like straight up meditation. I do it in a lot of other ways. Like I do a lot of other things, but like effort is definitely where I struggle the most. Um, and then where I think I do the best is, is I would say either Lordy, I was going to say strong determination because once I do decide to do something, I'm very strong in my determination to do it. But fuck if I know, I don't know if I'm actually good at any of them. Like to be perfectly honest, I think I'm, I can, I have moments with all of them, but there isn't a single one that I could be like, I rock at tolerance. And that is everything for today. So thanks so much for joining us, guys. Uh, Be sure to um, see where the perfections live in your own life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of This Spiritual Fix. Please be sure to like us and leave us a review if you like us on iTunes. It helps people find us and it helps us stay on the charts. Have a wonderful day. And remember, humility, gratitude, acceptance, done. Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.